Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, news editor. And I'm Emily Burt, editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are discussing data protection and digital security. Later on we'll be hearing from data protection expert Rowena Fielding on what charities can do to keep sensitive data safe. And as ever, we will be bringing you our charity good news bulletin. But first, I do just firstly want to comment on Andy. This is the first time we've had this combination on the podcast, you and me. I think you and Rebecca have done some hosting together. Have you and Stephen ever hosted together? No, it's never been just the boys. Oh, there you go. Well, we'll have to organise that sometime. But (laughs) for now, this is great. It feels like a momentous episode. And we are going to spend it talking about GDPR. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever find that kind of comedic GDPR subject lines really push your buttons? Because I get the most bizarre array of things from people who essentially just want to know if they can hang on to my data. I once received a GDPR email with the subject line, never going to give you up, never going to let you down, which (laughs) really it compelled me to give them up as fast as I possibly could. But also when you dig into it for a hot moment, you just realise it's exactly the opposite of what a GDPR email should. (laughs) promise you i mean surely they shouldn't write to you saying we're not going to let your data go even if you know no definitely not i would say that's probably a bad approach and channeling a bit of rick Astley from the 1980s might necessarily not really help you very much in that regard i remember when gdpr first became a thing the biggest thing in our office was apart from the fact that there seemed to be an insatiable desire for people to read news stories relating to the gdpr once it once it kind of came into view. But the biggest issue we had at Third Sector Towers was, does GDPR need a the in front of it? (laughs) it. And there were all kinds of arguments going on in the office. Should be the the general data protection um, regulation? No, no, you could just... And everybody was just saying GDPR, but in the end, we decided that the definite article was very much needed. So we've tended to stick with that as best we can. Oh, well, then I'm going to break the style guide in this episode because I'm pretty sure we just talk purely about GDPR without the the (laughs) in here. So, you know, apologies to um, apologies to Peter, who I'm sure put that in place several years ago. But so so you were having this row in Third Sector Towers a few years ago, and indeed data protection has been a very hot topic in the charity sector for a couple of years, particularly when it came to that introduction of the dreaded General Data Protection Regulation in May 2018. So what was it that everyone was so worried about that they were just desperate to read all these news stories? Well, much of the focus and much of that concern around the introduction of the GDPR was about how charities were choosing to capture and use donor data and whether that activity would still be possible under the GDPR. Note, the GDPR. The GDPR, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the key issues in data protection is not just about how the charity obtains and uses data itself, but how it protects that data from other less savoury parties. Absolutely. And of course, being able to gather that donor data is a crucial part of how charities function, but it's equally vital that it can be kept safe. And fines that can be levelled against organisations under the GDPR are hefty. You know, you can be fined up to £17.5 million or 4% of your annual global turnover, whichever is greater. And crucially, these fines can still apply in cases where data has been put at risk, not just in cases where it's been used inappropriately. 
we should, of course, point out that the Information Commissioner's Office, which is the regulator in this area, has said it won't always go for the maximum fine. It will take into account honest mistakes and attempt to correct the issue and so on. And historically, it has tended to be more lenient with charities. But in recent weeks, we have seen two stories about data protection and digital security issues within the charity sector. So we recently reported that the transgender young people's support charity Mermaids was fined £25,000 by the ICO after it was discovered that personal information relating to 550 people was available online for almost three years. So in making this judgment, the regulator said that the charity had had a negligent approach towards data protection with inadequate policies and a lack of training for staff. The regulator began investigating the charity in 2019 after the Sunday Times was made aware that almost 800 pages of confidential emails were viewable online. And this included names and email addresses. So not the sort of thing that you want floating about on the World Wide Web. Some of the data exposed was really sensitive data as well about how people were feeling. And some of it was classified as so-called special category data because it included information that related to mental and physical health and sexual orientation. So how was it that all of this ended up on the web? Well, what happened was that Susie Green, the charity's chief executive, had set up an online email service to communicate with the charity's trustees in August 2016, which was used for almost a year But what the charity didn't realise was that the email service was not sufficiently secure, which meant that personal information from the emails was searchable online if correct terms were used. The first time the charity realised there was an issue was when it was contacted by the newspaper in June 2019. The nightmare scenario for a lot of charities. Absolutely. So just knowing that all of that has been out there for three years is not a good situation to find yourself in, to say the least. So the ICO concluded that what the charity should have done was to have applied restricted access to its email group. And it could have considered, and let's see if I can say this right, first time round, the charity could have considered pseudonymization. (laughs) Nailed it. Yes. Pseudonymization or encryption, which would have added an extra layer of protection to that personal data that it held. However, the regulator did say that Mermaids had cooperated fully with the investigation and had made significant improvements to its data protection policies since becoming aware of the security breach. So Steve Eckersley, who is the director of investigations at the ICO, pointed out that the nature of the work that Mermaids does should have compelled the charity to impose very stringent safeguards. Because without them, the very people that it wants to help could be subjected to harm, distress, prejudice, harassment or even abuse. And very tellingly, he said that as an established charity, Mermaids should have known the importance of keeping that personal data secure, which is, I think, you know, something all organisations want to be bearing in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mermaids did apologise publicly over the breach when it was first discovered in 2019. And it did reiterate the apology when the ICO verdict was released earlier this month. But in terms of resolving the problem, the charity said it used both an external data consultant and an information technology security auditor to look into any issues raised. It had also conducted a safeguarding audit. The charity's chair, Belinda Bell, said all complaints from the data subjects affected had now been resolved. Which comes back to that uh, comment from the ICO that they have significantly improved their practices since then, which is good. Mm. Um, But in this instance, this kind of data protection, this security breach was something that the charity had actually done themselves unwittingly that then went on to compromise their data security. Um, But what about that other story? 
Yeah, well, by contrast, the second story from the past few weeks was about the Salvation Army, which was the subject of a ransomware attack. Now, for those who don't know, ransomware is a form of malware or malicious software that encrypts a victim's files. The attacker then demands a ransom from the victim to restore access to the data upon payment. Mm. In this case, the charity declined to give precise details on the nature and extent of the incident, but said it had reported the matter to the Charity Commission and the Information Commissioner's Office, indicating that data might have been stolen. Yes, so they were a bit cagey with the details around this. However, uh, Javad Malik, who is a security awareness advocate at the training company Know Before, said that anyone who had provided details to the charity should assume their information may have been compromised. While not many details were available around the attack and the nature of the information that was stolen, he said that, quote, to err on the side of caution, anyone that has provided details to the Salvation Army should assume that all the information may have been compromised. And this includes passwords or any personal data submitted, including financial information. So this is something that can then go on to affect donors, it could affect beneficiaries or employees or organisations working within that charity. And if we go further back, the US-based company Blackboard was a victim of similar ransomware attack last year. And that was a really big one, wasn't it? It was, yeah, because Blackboard is one of the largest providers of fundraising, financial management and supporter management software to the UK charity sector. So the attack led to at least 33 UK charities making serious incident reports to the Charity Commission. It's not clear which charities were caught up in the attack, although the National Homelessness Charity Crisis and the mental health charity Young Minds did say they were among those affected. And in that case, Blackboard ended up paying the ransom to ensure that data would not be made publicly available or shared elsewhere. Blimey. (laughs) Not again, you know, not a situation anyone wants to find themselves in. So... Given that data security incidents that affect charities can not only lead to fines and to negative publicity, but can also have really serious consequences for service users and for supporters, how can charities ensure that they are protecting themselves and the data they are responsible for? Well, to find out, Third Sector's features and analysis writer Rebecca Cooney, who is on holiday this week, spoke to the privacy and data protection specialist Rowena Fielding, also known on Twitter as Miss IG Geek. Now, we've had some slightly fuzzy audio recording for this interview, so just make a note of that in advance. But the content is exhilarating. So we've been discussing some of the news stories from recent weeks about how charities look after the data that they are given. At the moment, how good would you say charities are in terms of understanding their responsibility to protect people's data and also in terms of actually managing to do that? I would say that charities, by and large, are um, very good at recognising that they do have a responsibility to protect the data and very earnestly wanting to protect the people behind the data. Um, in terms of actually managing to do it, that's very complex because um, you know we live in a world with uh, loads and loads of connectivity, loads of tools, um, loads of complexity and it's uh, often it takes an expert to notice where the risks and the gaps actually could arise, um, you know, possibly even you know long in advance. So I think 
um, a lot of charities are hampered in their ability to actually do the protection um, because of lack of internal expertise, um, lack of funds for uh, resourcing that expertise, um, the, the usual tension between spending money on the front line and spending money on back office systems and protections, which um, you know is, is something that the great British public often resents charities doing. So they're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place trying to operate in an immensely complex environment um, in a way that is secure while getting the stuff done that the charity exists to do. So it, it's very hard. Okay. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned issues around cost there. And I mean, obviously, we know that as well as cost, charities just have a lot on their plate at the moment with, with you know, demand, with, with things to worry about as much as money. Um, so I, this question is probably going to rile you up a bit, but how much of a priority should cybersecurity be for charities? Uh, well, I'd say that that really is going to have to depend on the charity's own risk appetite and um, you know, their the kind of operational ethics policy. Um, because uh, while well, cybersecurity absolutely has to be a consideration and it has to be an ongoing consideration, not a one-off, here we go, we've uh, installed a thing that's fixed it. Um, the, the, the reasons to do cybersecurity um, need another look, I think. Um, in a lot of corporate environments, cybersecurity is focused on protecting the organisation. Um, but if charities want to be the good guys, then they need to take into account the other reasons for cybersecurity, which is protecting the living human beings that uh, they held data about. And I think the connection between um, data protection, cybersecurity and ethics and values um, could do with being made a bit more strongly, because at the moment, I still do see data protection and cybersecurity being approached as a, a kind of a legal thing, a compliance thing, mm. um, a, a box ticking thing that you have to do um, instead of kind of taking a step back and saying, what do we need to be doing to protect human beings here? And how much of our time and attention and money is protecting those human beings worth? Um, and that's, that's a board level decision that I think possibly isn't necessarily being had while charities are, are wrangling the, the day-to-day of getting stuff done. Hmm. And what are some of the concerns, like you, you we're talking about human beings here, and what are some of the, the consequences for data being leaked or data breaches for those human beings? Well, the consequences range from um, you know, an, an annoyance or anxiety, um, and then there's potentially people uh, being at increased risk from identity theft and fraud, um, and then you have people who have uh, you know, perhaps abusive exes in their lives who they want to keep a low profile from, and then you have people who are part of stigmatised communities. Um, who could be at risk of uh, a greater risk of in, uh, harassment or abuse, uh, discrimination. Um, and then you've got the factor of there, uh, there are so many hundreds and thousands of algorithms around us learning about us from our data and 
judging us and treating us according to the interpretation of our data that you you kind of you get into the realms of you know totally unpredictable consequences um so i i think one problem with the uh, the current approach to cybersecurity is that it looks at what could possibly go wrong and work back from there you know constraining further and further into what can we afford hmm. rather than starting from the outset with what is it we need to and sh- must do to protect the the rights the freedoms the welfare the dignity of these living human beings whose data we have okay and so jumping off from that you know what steps can charities take to protect themselves and the data they're responsible for and the people they're responsible for uh, definitely get help. Um, I mean, it's like anything else these days. You know, the cybersecurity is a highly specialised, highly skilled discipline. And if you're not somebody, uh, if your organisation doesn't have somebody who is familiar with that discipline and has you know studied it and practised it, then you're going to be hampered in your ability to actually do it. Definitely, um, you know, at the outset get help to tell you where and why the gaps exist and how bad they are and you know what you can and should do about it um, but also I think uh, approaching training of staff in fact ditch the t-word it because you're not teaching puppies to play tr- to do tricks here what you're doing is trying to um, get individuals to behave in other indi- individuals best interests and so um, fostering a culture of respect for other people via their data um, is, is really important. Half an hour's e-learning once a year is not going to instill the kind of culture that uh, an organization needs to have in order to do information security effectively. So, yeah, there's definitely that. Uh, and also be much more circumspect about um, approaching new technologies because while they might be you know wonderful and shiny and do amazing things with each new thing you bring in the the gaps the risks the vulnerabilities increase exponentially um, in these days really especially with cloud platforms so you know really really rigorous risk assessments um, and if the organization doesn't have the resources the time the money to do those risk assessments then you know there's a question as to whether the organization should be doing that thing in that way at all okay so and that's interesting because often we hear about you know charities are a bit behind the curve on digital i don't think i mean i think that's become complicated during the pandemic and and it's less true now than it used to be but yeah this idea of don't rush in and kind of look before you leap as well is a really interesting one. Um, so if a charity sort of the worst happens and it realises that a breach has happened or could potentially happen, what advice would you offer to them in that scenario? As soon as you realise that there is a potential breach, um, I mean, and I'm speaking from a data protection point of view here, yeah. um, the, the, the first question for me would be, is it still happening? Can you stop it? And if it is still happening and you can stop it, go and stop it right now. And then we'll talk about, (laughs) you know, the regulatory stuff. Um, If it's still happening and you can't stop it, then, I mean, this is a good reason to have incident response plans in place before something bad happens. So, you know, risk management 101, don't wait till it's all gone wrong before you figure out what to do about it. But yeah, if, if the breach has already happened and it's, it's, you know, not happening anymore, does it involve personal data? If so, 
it's probably going to be one of those notifiable within 72 hours things. It's very unlikely the ICO will get around to looking at the notification within 72 hours. So as long as you're also investigating um, in good faith and closing the gaps and doing proper root cause analysis of what went wrong and what do we need to do in order to prevent this happening again, Hmm. you're not risking anything by reporting. In fact, you're risking more by not reporting and potentially getting found out later on and then actually being in serious trouble for not having reported. And this, again, is where the tension between the organisation's interests and the data subject's interests comes in. So the organisation might not want to you know, stick its head above the parapet and risk its reputation by admitting having a breach. But there are you know, a lot of cases where Um, individuals need to know that that breach has happened so that they can take steps to protect themselves and exercise their rights, Mm. um, you know, including the right to complain. So um, again, yeah, I think charities need to figure this stuff out before something bad happens, because when something bad does happen, everybody is too busy running around like headless chickens, defending their fiefdoms, their egos, their reputations, their, um, you know, their pet projects and people don't really make sensible decisions in crises so get the decision making path laid out well in advance brilliant and was there anything else you wanted to add um i just i think really just a a kind of um not so much well a warning a cautionary note in that we've got technology now that is extremely powerful and extremely capable and extremely complex uh and that makes it also extremely dangerous And so I think it is really important that a charity's uh, cybersecurity position comes directly from um, their strategic position on their ethics and values. You know, it's no good saying we're the good guys, but we're going to say spend more on um, this, uh, say, perhaps campaigning activity over here um, if the fundamentals and the basics of protecting the data of supporters and beneficiaries beneficiaries and employees and volunteers um, isn't in place. So I think um, it's really important for charities to have a hard look at priorities in terms of people's safety, people's rights, people's freedoms, people's interests, not just the organisations. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you very much for joining us, Rana. Thank you, Rebecca. It's been great. So each week, of course, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a collection of interesting or unusual stories that we have spotted in the charity sector. Andy, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week we have the news that a team of amateur cyclists led by the former England footballer Jeff Thomas completed the Tour de France route and raised more than £1 million for the blood cancer charity Cure Leukaemia. They cycled some 2,100 miles Mm battling extreme heat, illness and fatigue. And the team finished the feat a week ahead of the professionals. I think that's personally a very worthy goal for you to take with you to your London Marathon uh, competition (laughs) in October. Finish ahead of the professionals. Why not? You know, aim high. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, why not? It just, you know, it just requires me to suddenly develop superhuman powers and um, be able to run a marathon in two hours. There's no problem. I'm sure. <laughs> but at least you won't have to do it in extreme heat. We would hope come October. Yeah. Um, we are on 
day four of the July heatwave at the moment, aren't we? And I think both of us are really feeling it, even just sitting at home and trying to work. So the idea of <laughs> cycling 2,000 miles in conditions like this, it doesn't really bear thinking about. Yeah, and, and you want to see some of the mountains, they have to ride up as part of that. It is certainly no picnic. Oh my goodness. Jeff Thomas, who was capped nine times for England during his career, was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukaemia in 2003, a year after he retired from football. Um, Andy, can I just hop in and ask, what, what exactly does it mean to be capped? Ah, well, that's a very good question. And it comes <laughs> from the fact that when people play international football or rugby, or indeed, I imagine probably quite a number of other sports, they receive a physical cap. Really? That says, you know, you are an England player. Do you get to choose the kind of cap you get, like a baseball cap or a flat cap or a... <laughs> flat cap. Well, I don't know. Yeah, we... I feel like if you were a cricketer, you'd probably be much more likely to get a flat cap than you would a, a baseball cap. Yeah, no, they they get they're normally like a little peaked cap, you know, like one that you'd nice. wear at school, that kind of yeah. thing. I don't think I don't think they get like a you know one that a basketball player would wear or something like that. They're not quite uh, they're not quite that modern. I don't think they actually get physical caps these days. Well, that's a travesty. We should bring them back. Yeah, that's where the phrase "capped" comes from. Fantastic. So. He was capped nine times for England, um, but then, you know, after his retirement and his diagnosis, he was initially given just three months to live. But he went on to overcome the disease two years later after treatment and a stem cell transplant. And he has since completed the Tour de France route on five occasions. So he must love those mountains. Oh, man, he, he must. And, oh, it, well, just to reiterate what we said before, it must be so hard. So... Well, I'm going to say hats off. Maybe I should say caps off Way. to, uh, <laughs> to uh, Jeff Thomas, who was made an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours in June for his charity work. Very well deserved. And he says he thinks he has one more tour left in him. Well, that's fantastic. So congratulations to Jeff Thomas and to everybody who cycled with him on that incredible feat. What a great amount to raise for charity. So hats off, caps off to all of you. You're all winners. Um, and... Uh, for our listeners who tuned in to last week's podcast as well, I have a tiny follow-up, also football-related, um, to last week's good news, which is that after an online competition, the baby beaver, or the kit, born on a National Trust property in Exmoor, has been named Rashford. Or, as one fan quipped, Nashford, oh. which I... Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think it's better than, I think, Rebecca and I's suggestions of, I think, Paul or Crumpet. Rashford is definitely better than that. So, you know, we didn't get into the finals, but I'm at peace with it. Um, he's been named after another footballing legend, which I'm sure is a very, very worthy tribute. Well, we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I am Emily Burt. And I'm Andy Ricketts. Thank you to our guest, Rowena Fielding, and our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.